for tuning in to the HR Uprising podcast. I'm your host, Lucinda Carney. The HR Uprising is focused on helping forward-thinking people professionals deliver real lasting value in their organizations. I'm a chartered psychologist, speaker, and trainer, and recently authored the best-selling business book, How to Be a Change Superhero. My day job is founder and CEO of software and training business, Actus. This gives me the opportunity to work with other businesses like yours. We are focused on building a better workplace for people wherever they are located with the help of our performance, learning and talent management software and our training and consultancy services. Every week on the podcast, I will be covering different topics and challenges joined by relevant experts and real life people professionals. Thank you so much for tuning in. I really hope you enjoy and get value from this week's episode. And welcome to this week's HR Uprising podcast. And I'm so excited to start 2024 with Gethin Nadin, an absolute expert in well-being. And this is our focus area. What do we need to know about well-being for ourselves and the people um, that work with us? What works? What doesn't work? So I'm really looking forward um, to tapping into Gethin's expertise. Now, Gethin, you're well, you are a chief innovation officer at Benefex, but also you're a You've written number of, number of books, you're a speaker. Would you like to introduce you know, yourself in terms of your expertise and your knowledge, particularly in this area? Yeah, so hello. Thanks for having me, first of all. Um, pleasure to be here. Um, yeah, so I'm uh, uh, an award-winning psychologist, um, written two and a half books on uh, workplace well-being. Uh, both have been bestsellers. The third one is being written at the moment, so that'll be coming out at some point in 2024. Um, I've made a number of different uh, influential HR lists, so the, the kind of speaking and writing and uh, quote unquote thought leadership that uh, that I do has obviously got me some uh, notoriety in a few places. Um, but I'm also chief innovation officer, as you said, for a company called Benefits and Employee Experience Technology Business, and chief innovation officer for Zealous, which is a, a payroll company who pays about one in five people in the UK. So. A lot of experience working with people at the the forefront of HR, um, reward and benefits and payroll. So hopefully you can bring some of that experience to the conversation today. Definitely. I'm, I mean, I've been looking at all the thought leadership that you put out there and, and, and a lot of the research as well that you've done in your roles, I think, would be really interesting to share with this this audience. Um, is it in terms of a sneak preview? We'll all be wondering what's the new book going to be on. Are you able to tell us? Yeah, so it's um it's going to be about how the uh, world we've created for ourselves just isn't really uh, appropriate, doesn't serve our well-being. So you know we we've been told of a loneliness epidemic, and that screen time is bad for us, and social media is bad for us, and perhaps AI is going to be bad for us. And the book is really about how the last thirty years have really damaged our well-being, but with the right decisions, the next ten years might actually improve it. So an optimistic view of tech in the future and how using the right way it could actually make us all a little bit better and feel a bit better about our lives oh wow that sounds really interesting and actually something to look out for maybe we can tap into some of that research that you're going through as we're going through this yeah. conversation um yeah, can i just start let's start really basic um in terms of because obviously you're working with organizations and well-being i mean when i asked a question out on linkedin as to what people are doing with well-being are they doing anything new or is it well-established well-being strategies the general consensus is they're doing i guess what they've always done it's well established um i'm not quite sure exactly what that is so in your experience what would well-being strategies be and also are they effective yeah it's a really good question i think it, it it's 
well-being is still finding its place in most modern organizations and so i think for some people they're taking what i would view as a really progressive view of looking looking after their people at work and and others are doing what we've kind of always expected and what be the minimum viable expectations of what well-being at work is um, i think if you look back over time we can look back to america in the 1940s and see when kind of employee assistance programs first started to emerge and and that was really driven by this idea that if somebody's distracted from work, then that's not great for business. So how do we stop them being distracted from work or if they're ill, get them back to work as quickly as possible? And it was by the late 40s, the Labour Board in the, in the US was putting a cap on wages. And so in order to attract people, things like health insurance were offered over and above wages. And so that's when it really became kind of incentivized. So We've had workplace well-being for 100 years, I would say. Um, so it's not really new. We talk about it a lot now, but I don't think it's new. But I think what started to change is by the 1980s, we started to see some of this research emerge that actually well-being at work wasn't just about stopping people from being ill and away from their desks or away from their workstations. It was actually that we started to see this drip drip of research saying, actually, the better you take care of your people, the better your organisation is. And you know, by the turn of the millennium, we started to see this really rich data set that said, actually, the healthiest and happiest organizations produce more and more innovative, create greater stock returns and profitability. And so we really started to see that well-being became a driver of organizational success, not just a, a, a risk limiting um, activity. And so I think nowadays, because of that, we've got some people who are still back in that kind of 1940s if you're ill, I want you to get it better and back at work as quickly as possible because I don't want to see that loss in productivity or performance yeah. versus those other companies and some big names we'll be familiar with who do a huge amount where the work-life balance is really important, uh, making sure people are happy and healthy at home because they'll bring that attitude and, and that experience to work and create better work experience as well. All those things are kind of happening at the same time. Um, and I think at the same time, we're also seeing um, a, a couple of large US, largely employers who are maybe trying to dial this back and go back to this old world where, you know, you work for us and we tell you what to do and you come here and you get paid and that's the end of the relationship. So a real mix at the moment, I think, of where people are. So I think it would stand to reason that um, people will be in very different places at the moment. They might be quite advanced. This still might be quite new to them and their organization and and resource plays a big part in that, right? You know, if you're a big Unilever and can spend billions on investing in your people, that's great. But if you're a small SME that sees all this stuff but can't actually enact any of it, you're going to be at a very different level as well. I mean, that would be really interesting to tap into as both sentiments of that, because obviously a lot of the listeners of this podcast work for smaller SMEs and don't have unlimited budget. So it would be interesting to sort of look at the things that you have to buy versus the things that you can offer as again, sort of in terms of well-being. And so... It is interesting to me for me for many of us. I'd say it feels like well-being has been a buzzword during and since the pandemic. Um, but you're saying it's been going a lot longer. But has it changed in in that time? Yeah, I think I think um, that the pandemic was clearly a watershed moment for well-being. I mean, slightly frustrated that it took a global pandemic for some employers to pay attention to this. As I mentioned, some of this stuff has been around for for quite a long time, and, and the research has been around for the last decade at least or so. Um, but I think we started to realise um, on the whole, lots of organisations realised that actually if they didn't help their people through the pandemic, their business would suffer. And clearly it was a time when there was a lot of attention on revenue and protecting businesses. Um, and so I think the pandemic played a big part in furthering people's understanding and engagement in workplace well-being. 
Um, I think what was really interesting is during the pandemic, I think we saw a lot of employers panic buy. They realized they had to help their people and they went out and they bought things um, because the easiest thing to do quickly is to go out there and buy stuff. Um, so we saw a big uptick in the number of people buying some of these workplace well-being platforms and mental health platforms to better support their people. We saw the NHS in the UK kind of rubber stamping some of those platforms and rolling them out. And um, and so we saw this big boom in engagement. Um, at the same time, you know, some of the customers I work with started just managing their people a little bit differently. So, you know, we started seeing employers start to do lots of the things we've always wanted them to do, or many of us have been saying they should do for a long time, which was managers were checking in more regularly with their people ceos were getting on video calls and telling everyone you're important and you care about you we were communicating with transparency we were just making more of an effort with the people that work with us i mean there's one house builder that i work with who um between the hr team they divided up the phone numbers of a thousand members of staff and called each one of them during the first couple of weeks of the pandemic just to say are you okay and what more do we need to be doing for you and you know, we wouldn't have heard of companies doing that kind of yeah. thing before yeah. um, and I think what's interesting now is, you know, we are in the shadow of the pandemic and it feels feels like it's behind us. And um, I think a lot of people are looking back at some of those buying decisions three years on after those three year contracts are coming up for renewal and thinking, was that tool that I bought, was that mental health platform the right thing to do? Has the engagement been there? Have people been using it? Has it made a difference? Does it actually support my people? Um, and so I think people are kind of reflective as they go into 2024 about you know what really does make a difference to people and how best should I be supporting the well-being of my people. So there's quite a lot there that I'm just going to try and check out that I follow, I suppose. So so interestingly, nice positive takeaway um, for those organisations that don't have budget to go and buy things is that, you know, phoning people, talking to people, the human contact um, is is a important thing to do and managing people effectively chief. Um, recognizing them, showing them that they're valued is a key part of of well-being. And I assume, and perhaps I'll, I'll wind back to what you said at the start about evidence. I assume that there is evidence that that is something that's important to do. These Absolutely. mental health platforms, I've got, I don't really know this. So, so what does a mental health platform do? What 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 would people be getting out of it? So, so they vary with their functionality. It could be from um, how, giving you access to a video doctor or video counselor. Um, it could be content written by mental health experts, mental health nurses, et cetera, who help you to maybe get better in touch with your emotions, understanding some diagnoses, you know, understanding depression, anxiety. Um, you could probably bring in some some of the corporate well-being, well-being spaces, um, mindfulness meditations. So you've got apps like Calm and Headspace, which people might have used as consumers who have now made a play for the corporate market as well. And you have lots of kind of fitness and general well-being and nutrition type apps as well. So there's, I mean, if you look at the data as of about six months ago, there was 900,000 different well-being apps across the various different app stores globally. So right. it's big business. You know, yeah. the global wellness market is now worth something like $60 billion a year. It's huge, huge business. And, you know, um, you've got celebrities selling candles under the guise of wellness now. So it's become a really convoluted and murky, murky place. Uh, and workplace well-being is no different you know workplace well-being has got you know you've got people who are helping you save for the future to relieve yourself of debt getting some financial education getting more physical exercise getting more nutrition therapy and all this kind of stuff so very broad church is now being offered in the workplace across various different apps and platforms so that's so that's helpful thank you and and, and i suppose 
I'm going to come in a moment to the, the mental health because a lot of it keeps going back to mental health as well. That seems to be uh, the main thing. But um, I suppose going back to because you have done the research in terms of the evidence. So have you got any sort of key takeaways that your research has shown as to what's more effective or what people are getting more value out of in terms of the um, different types of well-being support that's provided? Yeah, when I... Um... So when I wrote my latest book that was published um, just about a year ago, that was really on the back of running about 200 different well-being workshops with employers from all over the world. And frequently when I asked an employer what their approach to well-being was, I was read out a list of things that they bought. Um, yeah. Might be an employee assistance program, mental health platform, you know, free gym memberships, you know, whatever it might be. Uh, when you look at a lot of the data around what well-being at work is and how to improve it, the list is kind of like, how are you including people, not excluding? So how's diversity and inclusion form part of your workplace strategy? Um, how are we training managers? You know, do managers see employee welfare as part of their success? You know, are we encouraging managers to spend time with their people, having conversations with them about their lives rather than just one-to-ones being populated with targets and quality of work and that kind of thing? Are we recognizing people for a job well done? Are we allowing people to contribute in the decisions that we make so they have a voice and they're able to use it and they feel listened to? Are we asking their opinions on things? You know, it's all those kind of organizational structure factors. Um, and I think a lot of the workplace well-being apps that I've mentioned can adjunct that and make that experience even better. But I think fundamentally for most organizations, well-being is an organizational structure issue. Um, it's not about how deep your pockets are and what things you can go out and buy. Um, when we delved into really, you know, a benefits when we built this, well, we built a wellbeing platform fairly recently, and we really wanted to delve into the evidence of what actually makes a difference to people. And we summarised that it was what we called um, low intensity wellbeing interventions, which were how do we just give people a few more of the skills and education they need to better support their lifestyle. So, you know, one of the big stats that's touted in the, in the mental health space is. You know, one in three of us or one in four of us will get a serious mental health condition in our lifetime. Um, but that means for most organisations, and the figure will actually be less than this, 75% of your people aren't struggling. 75% of your people do not have a serious mental health condition. But those people still get divorced and have arguments with their spouse or their partners. They lose their jobs. They get long-term ill health. You know, all these things that affect our well-being. And most people, according to the data, do not really have the skills to understand their own emotions or how to better deal with some of those things. So how can they learn maybe sleeping a little bit better buffers against the effects of stress? So it doesn't stop it. And if you're going through divorce, an employer can't stop that. But could an employer give you some of the tools that help you just deal better and cope a little bit better with life? And so we think most wellbeing platforms should just be helping everybody to just be a bit better than they are now. Doesn't mean they have to be in a place of negative wellbeing. It just means that we can do a few things that mean we can help you feel a bit better about yourself, have better relationship with yourself or your colleagues, you know, sleep better, eat slightly better. You know, it's not about getting somebody from being in a really negative well-being position to suddenly, you know, be in a really good headspace and be able to run a marathon every week. It's yeah. it's about how do you actually get somebody to cope better with life. Um, and I think again, if you put that next to the organizational structure stuff, I think that becomes the kind of secret source to creating a culture of well-being in your organization. And it's interesting actually you just use the word culture because I was thinking some of that would be cultural. So, um, I mean, I, I'll, I'll get you right to explain a bit more about the structure that you use, but there's, there'll also be something about like the role modeling. Um, and again, you can do that in a small business, can't you? You could be a small business where you are 
encouraging people to be present you know all, all the way through or you could be a small business that says actually you know go out and exercise at lunchtime or um you know, you know weave these things into into your life um yeah. and support it in that way and having line managers that that encourage that um is that so when you say the organizational structure what what are you meaning by that yeah, so I mean, if you um, there's some really interesting research that was done by Burbeck University a couple of years ago, and they looked at what causes burnout. And burnout's a really good example of poor well-being because that's at the highest now that it's ever been. About 88% of employees in most countries say that they are they feel they're at risk or have burnt out over the last 12 months. Um, and when you look at the reasons why people burn out, what we tend to do is give people the tools to self-medicate to fix burnout what we don't do is stop burnout from happening in the first place Prevention. Okay. some really good examples i pulled out in in the latest book was you had some big employers around the world um who surveyed their people their people said they were burnt out so they gave them a paid week off and we were like you know i'm sure that's beneficial to some people but you weren't actually fixing the reason you know these people are going to have a week off paid and then go back into the same organization that burned really them out cool inbox. <laughs> yeah, exactly. um <laughs> and so i think um when you look at organizational structure it's about you know, how are we training managers and how are we recruiting managers so are we recruiting people that we are i that have the skills or we're giving the skills to better deal with people to have the empathy to have conversations with people so if I am going through divorce, someone's going to have a conversation with me about that and, and understand why my performance might have uh, um, gone down because of that and help me through that experience um, rather than just kind of say, oh, you're struggling, Lucinda, so you better go and deal with that yourself. Um, you're actually getting involved in that person's life and helping them. And um, and so I think it's about yeah, all those things I mentioned before. You know, Are we recognising people? Are we communicating effectively? Do the, do the people working with us trust us? And I think it's a really good point you make about SMEs feel small to medium businesses feel quite excluded from what they can do to support employee well-being because you've got very big businesses spending a lot of money doing a lot of great things for well-being. Yeah. And I think smaller companies sometimes feel like they can't compete with that. But to your point, you know, you can if you employ 50 people, you can get them in a room and you can have one to ones with them. You know, it's much more difficult to do that when you employ 50,000 people. Yeah. Um and you, so can, you can create a more consistent culture in a smaller business. You could be that person that says, this is how we manage people. And it's about treating people as human beings in a larger business. Well, it becomes more cultural, but you could have pockets of people that don't, you know, it could be more patchy, yeah. I guess, in that sort yeah. of thing. I think most experts would tell you that, you know, if you're starting your own business and you want an upward trajectory, try and keep it below 100 people for as long as you can. Because as soon as you start getting the complexities of numbers of employees, a lot of this cultural and well-being stuff becomes more difficult. Um, and that's why for lots of these big businesses, the, the tech enablement, you know, going out and buying tech and buying well-being platforms serves a purpose because you can give some support to 50,000 people at once effectively. Yeah, so, so it's not about, about sort of box ticking. It's actually, is it effective for people? Is it doing what it needs to do? And and I and I guess you could have spent huge amounts of money on a well-being platform, but if the culture is such or people are not motivated to engage with it or they feel it's stigmatised or their manager won't give them the time to do it, then you're not going to get value out of it in any in, in any way, I guess, in terms of that. So yeah. the culture that wraps around it and the messaging is going to be, you know, still have a massive impact. Yeah, I mean, if you think about if people are going to go onto a platform, I mean, like ours or anyone, there'll be some element of an employee giving up some data so that they can understand what is the well-being challenge I need to solve. And why would you give that data to an employer that you didn't trust was going to use that in a way that was going to make your life better? So yeah. you've got to have that 
positive culture and then these apps and platforms just become the icing on the cake really um, but they can't exactly as you said the be all and end all and I think that's what we found during the pandemic was those people went out and bought something but didn't really look at all the other things they could do and so you know people lots of employees I think were looking through the side of their eyes thinking why is this being rolled out when I'm being told to go on furlough or take a 20% pay cut you know it, it conflicts yeah. with those messages and so just staying with the mental health piece and you're saying that actually do you think it's a very disproportionate um emphasis now because a lot of you hear about mental health um there but you're saying but actually only 25 percent you know it, it would actually have a crisis that let's say at some point in their lifetime you know is it about and, and i hear you're saying about m- more prevention so is this about um people just I suppose looking at it genuinely as well-being, managing your your, your health, your sleep, your nutrition, um, your mindfulness, all of those things, creating that kind of thing. Um, so that is preventing it, it could be physical problems in fairness as well as mental health yeah. problems. Um, but do you think that I don't know the question, I don't, and this is maybe a philosophical question, uh, and I don't know whether it's a, if there is an answer. Are there more mental health issues? Is there um is it getting disproportionate? focus um or is it just that it's been swept under the carpet and stigmatized before and now it's getting an appropriate focus what's your take on that um i think it's a good question i think it's probably a little bit of all of the above um i think what's really interesting is clearly it was stigmatized for such a long time and you know people suffering on their own those problems have got worse you know early intervention can't be practiced if the individual isn't going to go and ask for help and feels like they can the conditions are right for them to to be open about their struggles um, I, I do think we risk talking about it too much. I do. I think the more we talk about mental health, we not we can actually risk normalising it too much. Um, because, I mean, if you look at some of the data during the pandemic, um, 20% of people that had never had a serious mental health condition before or even never had self-reported poor mental health said they struggled for the first time. So it's one in five people during the pandemic said, I'm struggling with my mental health for the first time ever. When you look at men during the pandemic in the UK in particular, the vast majority of those didn't ask for help or didn't tell anyone they were struggling because, and I'm paraphrasing, but and the, the general consensus was, well, we're all in the same boat. Everyone's struggling, so I'm no special. And I think the more everyone talks about their mental health, the more normalised it becomes that everyone's got poor mental health or is on a sliding scale. And so I think we, we do risk people not speaking up about it because it's like, well, everyone's got poor mental health because we've gone through a pandemic or we've gone through a cost of living crisis. Um, but I do think um, the ways we talk about mental health in the workplace, the way we can get our leaders to talk about mental health, so we set the permission for everyone else in the workforce. You know, I think it's really celebrities have jumped on this quite a lot, and I think it's it's a good marketing tool to have somebody talk about mental health at the moment. Um, and I think when but when leaders really are acting vulnerable, talking about their own challenges and actually saying, you know, you could be the CEO of a business and you can still cry yourself to sleep because something understandably bad has happened to you in your life. That sets a really nice precedent for employees to say, well, I can struggle too and I shouldn't be hiding this. Um, so and I think the 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 organization has got a really strong role to play in um in, in support in that way, because I think actually in all reality, the support just isn't there in most countries at state level um and and interestingly so so there's two things to this so the people who are struggling with poor mental health in most developed countries it's massively underfunded at state level so it'll take you a long time to get the support and you might not even get the appropriate support 
So in the UK at the moment, if you want, depending on where you live in the country, if you wanted cognitive behavioral therapy for a mental health issue, you might be waiting 12 months for that. Um, lots of the employers I work with can get you access to that today. So through the private mechanism, so there's that piece. So actually better for the employee, better for the employer. Yeah. The other other side of that is 50% of people's poor mental health from the research I've done is down to um, modifiable lifestyle behavior changes. So actually it's not in people's debt. Some people have got it genetically. Some people are predispositioned to get poor mental health, but most of those conditions aren't. The same with cancer and heart disease. It's not in our destinies. You can change that through some of these behavior changes. And if you do that for employees, better for them. But you also prevent the employer from falling into a position where they're having to deal with more challenges. And, you know, people getting cancer and poor mental health in your workforce is a cost to you because insurances kick in and premiums go up. Employees are less productive. They're not there as much. You have to backfill. Recruitment attention becomes a problem. So, um, I mean, getting this right, I think, is really about organizational success, not just about employee well-being. And I think that's why it's getting a lot more attention as well. I, mean, that's, I think you bring through a really interesting point there, which is um, from a cultural point of view, which I, which resonates really, because really what, what we're saying, I mean, if I go, if you go back to the pandemic, when I was doing webinars and things like that, because everyone was online, the most common thing people would say is that their, their well-being or their mental health was fluctuating. And actually, yeah. if you think about it, that's completely natural um, for people. Yeah. Um, well, you know, in terms of we're not all, all static every day. We've got various things playing into things. That we've got life. You've got how well you slept. You've got environmental factors. You've got hormones, there's, um, diet, all these sort of things which play into it. Um, and and but the, and the key that you're saying is, is not not over normalizing. It's not saying I've got to have a mental health issue to be I don't know, cool. It's almost um there's it, certain things that you see or diagnoses now that you see so commonly that it feels like there's almost a fad around it um they the, but the point you, that i feel is quite useful if i was trying to create a culture of well-being is a culture of personal responsibility for your well-being so we give you that and we say and actually here's the education and you know what if you do go out and exercise i'm not saying you have to sit at your desk for eight hours a day that's not going to help you be productive or or um or otherwise and take responsibility to get the help and to you know to use the modifiable um lifestyle factors as well so it's it's their responsibility rather than um being attracted to going oh i've got mental health issues and etc etc so it's not sticking yeah, to it's also giving responsibility. And I think what helps and what we're finding helps at the moment is when you can articulate to the employee why it's good business that they take care of themselves. So we can make some very clear links between individual well-being and performance and productivity. And as I mentioned at the start, you know, all these measures of success across whatever industry you're in, um, customer service gets better, customer loyalty improves, innovation increases, collaboration gets better, people who are happy and healthy sell more. So Actually, when the business goes to somebody and says, Lucinda, I want you to take care of your well-being today and you need you to go out for a walk because you've been in all day yeah. or I need you to practice some mindfulness or have some moment of quiet reflection away from a screen because that is part of your performance as well as your well-being. I think when you deliver those messages, people start to understand why the workplace cares. Um, and I think, you know, when when more people do that, it benefits both. And I think from an organizational point of view, historically and especially since the pandemic we focused on those employees who are at point of crisis and the kind of the squeaky wheel gets the oil the loudest voices the people with a condition whether that's physical or mental that needs fixing have got the attention when the reality is it's that 75 percent of people that are 
that potential of slipping, who I would describe as at risk, that are dealing with the ups and downs of life. And if they don't deal with it correctly, they could become the statistic. That means it's going to cost you money and it's going to challenge your business. Um, and it's really it, it's difficult to get employers to think about preventative, long term preventative yeah. measures, because you're trying to get somebody to invest in a future they can't see yet. But we put a helmet on when we ride a bike. We put our seatbelt on when we get in our cars because we know if we get that wrong, if we if the worst should happen, that's going to create a really bad scenario for us. And I think employers really need to understand that this gets worse for them if they don't do something. Yes. Um, and that's why well-being needs to feature in most organisations in some form or another because they need to understand that they are not going to get wherever they need to be, whatever success looks like for them, if they don't take better care of the people that work with them. Yeah, so so the it's it's a, a mutual responsibility, but it's not a soft and fluffy doing. Yeah, you know, just to be nice. It's actually this is this is good business. Um, yes. Keeping people well to be productive, and and I do feel with many people working remotely, um, it's almost more important for it to be personal responsibility. I'm not quite sure why, because if you're in a an office, maybe you didn't have less time, but you've, you've certainly you could glue yeah. yourself to the desk. You have in in principle got more choice as to how you weave things around your day. I think um in, ter- in terms of of this it just feels it feels like it's more more the case of the individual has to um you know schedule it and value it and place importance on it uh to, yeah. to get the best out of it so i'm sure i mean we can talk further in terms of that we were we were um before we came on air we were talking a little bit about future and future themes and and you mentioned uh, you know ai and stuff like that which seems to be a regular theme that in HR um, type areas, I'm always interested as to what part that might play in something like this. Um, what, what's your view on yeah. that? Well, I think that's it, that's what's given me the inspiration for the, the book that'll be coming out next year is um, is actually when you look at what the, the promise of AI, like the promise of most new tech that enters our life, is that it will make us more productive. Um, if you look at something like um, a, a mobile phone, a mobile phone took about 34 days of admin away from us every year as individuals. So you know, as a, as a tech tool that has enhanced our lives because it stopped us, you know, and it, you know, emailed the internet, all of those things have done yes. the same the kind of things. And so the promise of AI, when you look at all the emerging research, is that it will do the same. And some of the very early studies suggest about 20% of everybody's job will get, they'll get more productive because of AI, or 20% of their tasks will be taken away from them because of AI at some point in the very near future. Um to put that in context of how quickly that's happening, if you take something like um, a large natural language processing model like ChatGPT or ChatGPT4, that's just about had its one year anniversary recently. So still very new technology. If you applied the rate at how quickly that's developing and improving to something else that we use in our lives, like again, a mobile phone, you know, your mobile phone battery at the moment will probably last you eight, 10 hours perhaps. If we applied the same rate of development that cut some of this AI is going through to your phone battery, by this time next year, you would never have to charge your battery. You'd buy a new phone and you would never, ever charge it for the life you had the phone. Um, So really, really rapidly. And I think this is why it's coming up so much in HR conversations is the pace of development is is scary and it's making governments nervous and governments are making some decisions around regulation and all that kind of stuff. Um, But if you start to think about if AI is going to impact people, when you look at the um when you look at manufacturing from kind of 10 even 20 years ago and what people were worried about when robotics were coming into factories we can see that mental health declined 
amongst those industries where automation was a high risk factor. So if you worked in a factory, you're putting parts on a machine or loading things in boxes, you are at high risk of automation. And when a role's at high risk of automation, mental health goes down. People start feeling a little bit more inferior and invaluable in those roles. And we thought that was going to happen loads, right? We thought we we're going to have self-driving cars, yeah. self-service checkouts, which would have no people. But ChatGPT4 and other large language processing models have realized that actually this stuff's probably coming from middle classes, not these unskilled or low-skilled jobs. And again, I think that's making AI nervous because knowledge workers are still a big proportion of most companies. Um, and if you look at how productivity might improve by 20%, I think HR or businesses generally have got two decisions to make. If somebody produces 20% more with the same quality in the same way because they're being, their job's been adjunct by um, AI tech, we can use that for an additional 20% productivity gains, which is, you know, in the capitalist world is where most people will probably head straight to is actually, well, I can now produce 120% of work for the same individual, the same money in the same time. Or you could give that back to employees. And to give an example of how that could happen, the 20% increase in productivity could give you the four-day working week. So you could actually give people less time at work, more time to focus on the things that are important to them and their well-being, and still maintain the same level of quality and output. And I think the decisions we make around AI in the next couple of years have to be mindful of how it's going to affect people. Because I think if we continue to just go down the productivity and performance and this capitalist you know, generating more with less route, we risk diminishing the human experience at work and I worry about what future that might lead us if we do that. So, you know, I would love everyone who's listening, who works in HR, whatever business, whatever role they might have, to really think about any decisions they make around AI and think about the impact on the individual. Because what's the point in all this time we've spent and the investment people are making in well-being if we're just going to roll out new tech that's going to add net harm to our well-being as a result? And actually, the whole thing is, if you can get that um, extra time back, or things like, then that might retain people for longer, and 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 all those things. There's other benefits because many people, there's lots of evidence, isn't it, that people would like a four day working week or that sort of that balance piece of it. Just in terms of examples of that, so so in what would AI do in well being tech? What might be an example of where well being would come in? I don't know if it's in tech, in in well being or HR. What sort of things are you thinking? Um, so I think with with the HR roles, it's going to do um, like lots of tech has done in HR. It's just going to remove, remove more admin. So it's going to make decisions on behalf of people. It's going to analyze data. It's going to generate content. It's going to get people to answers. I mean, one of the obvious ways we're looking at using it at the moment is, um, you know, imagine if you could take every question any employee's ever asked of HR and put that into a system that can just give them the answer straight away then you're not having to pick up the phone, yeah. you're not answering queries. So you ask HR type um, helplines and things. Yeah. yeah, All of your policies, your handbook can all be handled by a bot that could just answer that question, but also answer it in a really smart way. So if you were saying to this chat bot, you were asking kind of how many days holiday do I get working at this company? Rather than tell you 25 days, it could say it takes 25 days, but actually you get your birthday off. So you get 26 days, you've already taken three, you've got 23 remaining. Yeah, And it gives you all the information in a split second. Uh, completely personalized to you um and i think in the hr world everyone seems really familiar with this idea that well the more i can remove some of that admin and the heavy lifting of the kind of the things that most hr people probably don't want to do too much of it leaves them more free to do the human side of hr you know actually spending time with people looking at development you know um, creating those better cultures invested in uh, the employee experience and i think 
from our well-being point of view, it will do the same. So, you know, if I said to you, I could take away five of your most frustrating tasks from your job every day, that would start to make you feel a little bit better. And for lots of jobs, when you take away the repetitive, the menial, the heavy lifting, you actually start to give them more purpose because they have more time and energy to commit yes. to the creativity well, stuff. Job sort of satisfaction, really, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, in that sense, it has a real potential to boost people's well-being if used in the right way. Fantastic. Okay, that sounds like interesting. Less scary when you look at it like that. Um, so I'm conscious of time. So thank you, guess It's been such an interesting conversation with you. If you were to, I guess, um, to the audience out there, if we were to close this down on your top tips for HR professionals for the next, um, for, for 2024 with regard to wellbeing, what would they be? Um, there's something psychologists called the gain spiral. When somebody has a great experience at work, they take that home and they have a better experience at home. When someone has a better experience at home, they come back to work and have a better employee experience. Um, an example of that is we can link um, a, a father getting adequate recognition in the workplace for the effort they put in has a better relationship with their children. Really interesting research that links those things up. So the more uh, it feels too paternalistic, I think employers are sometimes worrying about overstepping the mark and getting into people's lives a little bit more. But I think generally, the more you can help somebody deal with what's going on in life, the better they will bring that great stuff to work and have a better experience at work and deliver more for you. So I think we need to help people with the stuff that goes on outside of work, which is sometimes exercise, but being a parent, mental health, sleep, all those kind of things. And so I would think about how do you focus on those low intensity well-being interventions, the short things you can do every day that help people develop some of the better habits to, to have a better uh, a better life and, and feel happier and healthier? Um, I think the second thing is it makes sense in the workplace to be linking well-being to productivity because I think for the end employee, it feels far less I'm telling you what to do and I'm telling you to be healthy yeah. and more in case of you need to understand that the healthier and happier you are, the better we are. So I yeah. want you to do this in the workplace. So if I give you 15 minutes in the middle of every day to do mindfulness, it benefits you, but it also benefits me. And I think that helps to breathe. Part of your job is part of your working day. It was almost, yeah. 100%. And the third thing is, um, I think we need to have more vulnerability at management level. I think the more we can show that empathy by telling our own stories and our own struggles, the more we give people the permission to speak up and, the more people speak up and tell their manager about their trouble, the more we can practice that early intervention. So we get more of that 75% of people not falling into the 25%. And I think the only way we'll deal with the increasing prevalence of mental health is to, you know, to go up the river and find out why people are falling in in the first place, rather than just keep dragging them out the wreckage all the time. So back to prevention, actually, isn't it? And a lot of it's very human prevention, supporting people, normalizing it, good habits, good lifestyle, so, so I guess we've covered so much uh, really interesting stuff there, whether we've gone through um, structures, we've talked about um, everything from well-being platforms, are we getting value in them to um, actually doing things with personal management, management of time and things like that. So the, the power of the individual and the line manager, uh, we've, we've talked about what works, what doesn't work. What we personal responsibility, having that emphasis on personal responsibility, not overthinking the mental health, keeping things in balance, um, preventable, uh, you know, lifestyle factors, moderation factors, the whole thing, just this whole holistic piece, isn't it? Um, there in terms of a, a real sort of yeah, holistic way of working with people. Um, and it right through to AI and, and what that might mean. So I'm really interested into what 2024 does 
have in store. Um, and I look forward to seeing your book that is out in 2024. So uh, I really appreciate you coming on the on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. It's been really interesting. Thank you. I really hope you found this week's episode useful and enjoyable. If you did, perhaps you could recommend us to a friend or colleague or give us a review on your platform of choice. It really helps new listeners to find us. Now you can access links to any of the information mentioned in this show via the website www.hruprising.com. Further free resources are also available at www.actus.co.uk. There you can also find out more about our software and training solutions. Finally, why not join our LinkedIn group, The HR Uprising, to share ideas and collaborate with other like-minded people professionals. Thank you for listening to The HR Uprising podcast.